We have been spending the last 18 months or so talking about uh, the book of Genesis. We're nearing that study. Last week, Jeremy talked about the encounter between Joseph and his brothers. And we looked at that story, that encounter, from, essentially from the brothers' point of view and the effect of the sin that, of, of uh, selling Joseph into slavery, what effect it had on their lives. We want to flip that story today and look at the encounter between Joseph and his brothers from the point of view of Joseph. And we're going to specifically look at the issue of forgiveness. Joseph made a choice on that day when he saw his brothers to forgive them. Had he made a different choice, had he thrown them into prison, which he easily could have done and had the power to do, the whole rest of the story would have unfolded differently. But he made a gracious choice. And it's a choice that I think we can learn a great deal from because I know everybody in this room struggles with forgiveness at some time. Maybe in an ongoing way, maybe moment by moment. But we all struggle with it to some degree. So we want to look at the life of Joseph, see what we can learn from him and from his encounter with his brothers about that subject. So let me open in prayer and we'll get into that. Father, we thank you that you're a good and gracious God who's forgiven us. And may that be a marker for how we respond with our lives, that we would be gracious and humble people who recognize your goodness goodness to us and respond accordingly. Thank you for Joseph's humility in the face of what could have been a very ugly situation, and by all rights, maybe even should have been. We thank you for his, his example to us, and may we learn from it today. Thank you, Father, for your goodness to us and for your presence here today. And we ask these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. I don't know if any of you have ever heard the expression that so-and-so just wrote the first line of his obituary or her obituary. You'll see that when somebody does something that is, or you'll say that when somebody does something that is so unusual, so spectacular, that we know that no matter what they do the rest of their lives, their life is always going to be defined by and measured by that single achievement or event. Let me give you some examples so you can understand what I'm talking about. Um, we all remember on January 15, 2009, when U.S. Airways Flight 1549 took off in New York City, collided with a flock of Canadian geese, and the pilot of that plane, Ch- Chesley Sullenberger, successfully landed that plane in the Hudson River and saved the life of everybody on board. It was a spectacular feat and an important feat, again, in saving the life of every single individual on board that plane. There is no way that he, that he, Sullenberger, will ever do anything the rest of his life that will over, overshadow that. That's the day he wrote the first line of his obituary. That's what he will always be known for. He may live to be 110 years old, but that's the thing that we will all remember him for. Or here's another example. Don Larson was a pitcher for the New York Yankees and for six other teams in an 11-year major league career. He had a lifetime, winning record, or a lifetime record of 81 wins, 91 defeats a less than mediocre pitcher. But on one day, October 8, 1956, Larson did something nobody has ever done before or since, and that is in Game 5 of the World Series against the Brooklyn Dodgers, he pitched the Yankees to a 2 to nothing victory, a perfect game. Now, in the 120-whatever-it-is-odd years of professional baseball, there have only been 20 or 21, depending on how you look at what happened this week, <laughs> 20 or 21 perfect games in Major League history. Larson pitched one in the World Series, the ultimate spotlight. He's lived 54 years since that day, but that is the day he wrote the first line of his obituary. That's what he's always going to be remembered for. And there's a lot of people like that who you think about them, you think about one thing, one thing only. Neil Armstrong, Charles Lindbergh, Harriet Beecher Stowe, 
Francis Scott Key. These are people who lived, and, and in the case of Armstrong, still live, long, distinguished lives and do lots of things, but we really only know one thing about them. They had their first line of the obituary moment, and that marks the rest of their life. Now, in some respects, defining a person's life by a single sentence is really a good thing. In 1962, for instance, Claire Booth Luce, who was a member of the House of Representatives, was invited to lunch at the White House with President Kennedy. And she came to the White House not really knowing why he wanted to talk to her, but he really wanted a sounding board. He began to whine, frankly. He said, I really feel like my administration just isn't gaining any traction. I've been beset by so many different crises in Berlin and Cuba and Vietnam and civil rights that I really feel like there's no definition of what I'm doing. I don't know where to focus my attention. And she said, well, you know, Mr. President, all great men are known by one sentence. He said, what do you mean? She said, well, think about it. Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves. Jonas Salk found the polio vaccine to save millions of lives. Alexander Graham Bell invented the telephone. He said, all great men are known by one sentence. And your problem, Mr. President, is you've not figured out what your sentence is going to be. And until you do, your, your administration will never really gain any traction. Now, when you think about life that way, when you think, what do I want my sentence to be? I think that helps to bring some clarity to who we are. Because, frankly, most of us really only leave one sentence behind when we die. Now, what I mean by that is this. Think about people you know who've died, people you know only casually. Isn't it true that we tend to define their lives in only one sentence? That's not true when good friends die or when members of our family die. We could write entire books about them. But when somebody we, we don't know all that well dies, isn't it true that we, we, do, we say something like this? We say, you know, he was a great guy who really made people feel welcome because he was so outgoing and friendly. Or she was a kind of woman who just lit up the room because she was so outgoing and loved to make people feel comfortable. Or she was an incredible woman of God who was always happy to serve other people. I mean, those are the kinds of things we think. And if our life is going to be defined for a lot of people by one sentence, then maybe we ought to give some thought to the kind of sentence we want to write. What do we want our one-line obituary to read, if you will? Because the fact is, we can write a very tragic obituary for ourselves. We can leave a sentence behind that's really sad. For instance, it could read something like this. She was a woman who had enormous potential, but she drank it all away through her addiction to alcohol. Or he was a man who was great at business, but at great cost to his wife and to his children. I don't think that's the kind of sentence we want to leave behind us. As we talk about the issue of forgiveness, I know there's people who live lives riddled with anger and bitterness as we hold on to old grudges and old grievances we just can't let go. And I don't think that's the kind of sentence we want to leave behind either. I said before that I have a guilty pleasure. I'm not really proud of this at all, but I really like to read advice columns and and just to sort of, I guess it's kind of, I'm a peeping time who likes to look into people's lives and this is my window to do it without getting arrested. And so I read these things (laughs) and, and I want to read a couple of letters that really address the issue of forgiveness, or in some cases, lack of forgiveness. Both written to Dear Abby recently. Here they are, first one. Dear Abby, my daughter and her fiancé have a huge wedding dilemma. His parents went through a very messy divorce and are still fighting after more than 15 years. Both parents have made it clear they will not attend the wedding if the other one is there. Is there any way to convince two incredibly selfish and volatile people that they should put aside their differences for their son's big day? Now, I don't know about you, But I think that letter is pitiful. 
I think that's so sad that here's two people who 15 years after their divorce cannot put aside their anger for one day for their son. This ought to be a happy day. It ought to be a day of celebration, but they're going to ruin it because of their pride and their bitterness. That's pitiful. Here's the second letter. This one's pitiable. I read this and my heart breaks for the woman who writes this letter. I can't imagine the pain that she felt. Well, let me read it. You'll see. Dear Abby, my friends and neighbors thought I had the best husband and our children thought he was the greatest dad. But on the day he died, I found out he'd been having sex with another woman. I went to visit him in the hospital and, in the hospital and overheard the whole thing as he was talking to her. Abby, she was a prostitute. I knew money had been disappearing, but I never imagined anything like this. Should I go on pretending to my adult children or tell them the truth? They thought he was the best father in the whole world. Even though this happened more than five years ago, I continue to have nightmares over it. That's heartbreaking, isn't it? I mean, here's a woman who loved her husband, who had an image of who he was, and literally on the day he died, it shattered. And there's no way she can have that conversation with him to bring about some kind of reconciliation, a resolution. She's left with her pain, left with her memories, gone sour. And five years later, she still has nightmares over it. That's really sad. So what do we do in the face of these kinds of situations where our families are being torn apart by bitterness or we carry a grudge and we just don't know what to do with it? Because it's incredibly hard to forgive sometimes. Today we want to take a look at that issue in the life of Joseph because Joseph chooses to forgive when he easily could not have done so. He had the power to throw his brothers into prison. He had the power to kill them, but he didn't do it. He instead said, enough's enough. I'm going to break the pattern and I'm going to forgive. So we want to look at the story of Joseph in Genesis 44, starting in verse 18. If you want to turn in your Bibles, we'll get there, in just a, get there in just a moment. It will be on the screen in just a moment as well. But before we get there, we need to establish some context. So let's review what, where Tom and Jeremy have led us in the past several weeks and bring us to today. Joseph has risen to a position of great influence in Egypt, great power in Egypt. He, is the, he was the steward over, overseeing all of the warehouses of grain and the collection of all the grain in the midst of this terrible famine in the Middle East. And so people were coming from all over the Middle East to Egypt to get, to get relief, to get food, because of Joseph's foresight and wisdom. So his brothers come from Israel down to see Joseph. He, he sees them, recognizes them. They don't know who he is. He gives them grain to take home to their families, but he says, you must leave one of you behind and you must bring back your one brother because they've only brought 10 of the 11 brothers. They've not brought back Benjamin, Joseph's only full-blood brother. And Joseph is afraid that his brothers have done to Benjamin what they did to him, that they've killed him or sold him off. And he wants to see that Benjamin's okay. So he says, go home, take the grain, but you've got to bring back Benjamin. I'm keeping one of you here until you come back. So they come back, and they bring Benjamin. Joseph sees that he's okay, but he still wants to test them further. Who are these men now after all these years? Where's their heart? And so he gives them the grain, but he has someone put a silver cup in Benjamin's sack, and as the brothers head back, head back home, he sends soldiers out to them. They find the silver cup in Benjamin's sack. They arrest him, bring him back in chains. And, and as we pick up the story, the, bro- the brothers are now standing before Joseph. Benjamin accused of robbery, and they're going to now plead for Benjamin's life. So we will turn now to Genesis 44, verse 18, read through 45, verse 10. This is a reading of God's holy and perfect word. 
Then Judah went up to him, him is Joseph, and said, Please, my lord, let your servant speak a word to my lord. Do not be angry with your servant, though you are equal to Pharaoh himself. My lord asked his servants, Do you have a father or a brother? And we answered, We have an aged father, and there's a young son born to him in his old age. His brother is dead, and he's the only one of his mother's sons left, and his father loves him. Then, he said, then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me so that I can see him for myself. And we said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father. If he leaves him, his father will die. But you told your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him what my Lord had said. Then our father said, Go back and buy a little more food. But we said, We cannot go down. Only if our youngest brother is with us will we go. We cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One of them went away from me, and I said, He has surely been torn to pieces. And I have not seen him since. They're obviously talking about Joseph here. So if you take this one from me too, and harm comes to him, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in misery. So now, if the boy is not with us when I go back, to your servant, my father, and my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy, and let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No. Do not let me see the misery that would come upon my father. Judah has now passed the test. He's passed the test. He has said, let me stay, let Benjamin go home. I will become your slave. I will do what you need me to do and want me to do. Let my brother go home because I don't want to break my father's heart. He doesn't say this, but what he's really thinking is, I broke it once, I don't want to do it again. And now the next move belongs to Joseph. He can forgive or he can exact revenge. He has a chance to write a sentence that will define the rest of his life and that will resonate to this day. So let's look at the rest of the story and see what he says. This now takes us to Genesis 45. Here we go. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were unable to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there's been a famine in the land, and for the next five years there will not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to reserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, and lord of his entire household, and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, This is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen, be near me. You, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds, and all you have. So, we have a happy ending. This story ends well. Joseph says, that's it, enough, I'm going to forgive. And he breaks this pattern of bitterness that could have unfolded. Now, that's a very nice story. It really is a very nice story with a happy ending, and we all like happy endings. But... The question we have to ask is, what does it have to do with me? What does it have to do with us? What does it have to do with my pain? Many people in this room have been deeply wounded by a spouse, by a child, by a parent, by a friend, by a boss, by a sibling. 
and carry deep, deep wounds. And what do we do in the face of those wounds? Are we supposed to forgive people who've wounded us that way? And how do we do it? Well, we need to make one thing clear immediately. The Bible doesn't give us a lot of wiggle room. In fact, none at all when it comes to the issue of forgiveness. It's clear that we are commanded to forgive. And for the Christian, forgiveness ought to be a way of life. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 6, verses 14 to 15. He says this, For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. I mean, what's he saying? What he's essentially saying is this. Our offense is in the face of a holy and righteous and perfect God who loves us and gives us a world of such beauty and abundance. Our offenses against him, our rebellion, our indifference, our anger, so overwhelm any offense that could ever be done to us that in gracious response to what he has done on our behalf, then in turn we ought to forgive those who have offended us. God has forgiven us despite the way in which we ignore him and abuse him and rebel against him. And our only response, Jesus is saying, is to in turn forgive those who have offended us. To fail to do so says we really don't understand the depths of our sin. To fail to do so says we really don't think that our sin measures up in any way to what's been done to us. And Jesus is saying that's just not true. I mean, think about what we say when we pray the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That's what we're saying. Lord, forgive us. You have, you have forgiven us, and we need to forgive in response. See, in God's economy, our willingness to forgive is a reflection of our understanding of his mercy to us and the tremendous debt that he has forgiven on our behalf. Think about this in terms of Joseph. He was an innocent man who was betrayed by people he loved, and yet he forgave him. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He's a man who is betrayed by those he loves, and yet he forgives and in turn, the word to forgive. That's the idea we see in the, in the parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 18, 23 to 34, known as the parable of the unmerciful servant. Let's take a look at that. We're not going to read the whole thing. I'll read part of it, then summarize, and then go to the end and see what, what happens or what unfolds. Here it is. Jesus says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Now, 10,000 talents is basically an unpayable debt. I mean, you can put a number on it if you want. It's, it's you know, $35 million. It's a, it's a debt this man cannot possibly pay. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that, he had, all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him and canceled the debt and let him go. Now, so far, happy story. This servant who owes this unpayable debt is forgiven by this gracious master, this gracious king who says, okay, forgiven, you're, you're free and clear, go. And we would like to think that the response of this, of this servant would be to in turn be magnanimous and gracious to other people. But that's not what he does at all. Instead, when he confronts people who owe him tiny little sums of money, he basically he strangles them, he threatens their life and says, pay me now or else. And the king hears of this lack of gratitude and this lack of response on the part of this man whose debts he's just forgiven, and he calls him back into his presence. Here's the story. Verse 32, Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. There's a price to be paid for a lack of forgiveness. 
there's a price to be paid. And Jesus is saying, because you've been forgiven, in turn, we need to forgive. The problem, of course, is that we have an amazing ability to dismiss our own sins, our own flaws, our own faults, and yet hold those same offenses that other people commit against us against them forever. We have a tendency to let ourselves off the hook and blame other people. We have an, an amazing ability to attribute other people's behavior to the way they are rather than the situation they find themselves in. We put labels on people and say, oh, you are irresponsible, you are lazy, you are unreliable, you are dishonest, you are fill in the blank, whatever the offense may be. We put labels on people, but when we do exactly the same things, we don't label ourselves. We let ourselves off the hook. Let me give you an example. Last week, I had a meeting in, uh, down at Lafayette Square with Mike Workheiser and, and uh, Phil Woods for City Church. As I was driving down there on Highway 44, I was about to get off at the Jefferson exit. I pulled over onto the exit ramp, and as I did so, a guy who was all the way across in the fast lane of traffic, heading east, made a last-minute decision to get off at Jefferson. So he just veered across four lanes of traffic onto the exit onto the exit ramp right in front of me in the tiniest possible opening. I had to slam on my brakes, as did everybody in each lane as he crossed, and there were just squealing brakes all across the highway, all the way across. It was awful. And, and I barely avoided hitting the guy. He got in my lane, zoomed through a light that was just turning red, turned left onto Jefferson, and was gone. And I, I thought, of course, immediately, what an idiot. What a reckless, stupid, idiotic fool. And he was. But I thought about it a little bit more and thought, have I ever done that? Have I ever cut anybody off in traffic? No, I'd never do that. I would never do that. Have I ever made a last-minute decision to, to, to get off at an exit? I would never do that. Well, of course I do. Of course I do. But see, when he did it, I thought, that guy's an idiot. And when I do it, it's, well, you know, I'm late to a meeting and I normally don't drive this way, but just this time, i got to do this. Or I'm not familiar with this, this highway, and I didn't know this exit was coming, and I, ooh, i got to get off. I mean, I let myself off the hook, but I put the label on that guy. And I think we do that all the time. Again, you're irresponsible. I can't trust you. You're a liar. We do that all the time. And the minute we put a label on somebody, it makes it that much more difficult that much more difficult to forgive them. We're saying, that's who you are. We freeze them in that moment. As if that one decision or that one action is a snapshot of their, the totality of who they are. We don't treat ourselves that way, but we do that to other people. How unfair that is. Psychologists actually have a name for that. They call that the fundamental attribution error. And I think we're all guilty of it. And when we do that, it makes it very, very difficult to forgive. There's another problem with our unwillingness to forgive, and that's this. I would, I would argue that if we are unwilling to forgive, what we're really saying is we really don't believe in the power of God. Now, I know that's a strong statement. Let me define what I mean by that. If we don't forgive, we really don't believe in the power of God. Because for most things, for, some little, for little things, I guess I should say, it's fairly easy to forgive. You know, you're walking across the cafeteria carrying a tray, somebody bumps into you, you drop your tray, it splatters all over, somebody says, I'm really sorry, we go, that's fine. I mean, it's not, things like that happen all the time. We let go of those really quickly. But what about the big things? What about the deep wounds? The ones that really cut and hurt and last. Those, those are the kinds of wounds 
that our only solution is to turn to God and say, Lord, you've got to help me with this one. I really am carrying this one. I can't let it go. But when we do that, and there's not instantaneous relief, then the tendency can be to say, well, you know what? This one's just too big for God. This is a hurt I just got to hold on to. I can't let this one go. God can't do anything about this one. And it's as if we say, the God who raised Lazarus from the dead and the God who walked on water and the God who changed water into wine and fed the 5,000 can do those things, but he can't deal with my heart. We're saying, I don't really believe that you can do it. I don't believe you have any power to change me which is effectively acting as if we're an atheist. I mean, isn't that, isn't that what an atheist says? There's no God, and he's not real, and he can't do anything. When we make statements like that, God really can't change my heart, we're saying the same thing. That's the point that Lewis Ely makes in his book, In His Presence. Let's look at those words, because I think he says it very well. He says, The true atheist is not the man who says that God does not exist. The authentic atheist is... Excuse me. The authentic atheist hidden within each one of us is the one who affirms that God cannot change him, who denies that power of total transformation, that infinite power of creation and of resurrection that belongs to the Holy Spirit. The authentic atheist is the conservative, the one who asserts that at his age, one doesn't change any more than one goes back to one's mother's womb, that he's too old, that he's too weak, that he's too hardened, that he has already tried and has never worked, that nothing can be done with him. There's a tendency in all of us to say, God... This one's too big for you. God, you can deal with these parts of my life, but I'm holding on to this one. And when we do that, we say, stay away, we're effectively saying we have the same kind of faith that an atheist has. God extends mercy to us and expects us to extend mercy to others, and he recognizes that some of the wounds are so deep, the only way we can do that is to call upon his name and say, Lord, help me. We've got to be willing to do that. But that's easier said than done, isn't it? It's easier said than done to say, just forgive. It's one thing to forgive the little things. Those are pretty easy to do, but they're really deep wounds. Those are the, one, the ones that cut us to the core of who we are. They're seared into our memories and our hearts. Those are tough to let go. So what does Joseph's story tell us about those situations? I think it tells us two things. First of all, as Tom and Jeremy have been telling us over the past several weeks as we talked about Joseph's life, Joseph went through a horrible, horrible ordeal. And let's not minimize the pain he went through. He's a teenager, raised in wealth, in a family with a father that loves him. And he's ripped away from that, betrayed by those he trusted, and thrown into slavery, where he becomes a servant with no control over his life in a country that's not his own, taken away from his family as far as he knows forever. Taken from wealth to poverty like that. And then he becomes a slave in Potiphar's house, and he's falsely accused of a crime he did not commit, of adultery, thrown into prison where he's left to rot. He helps a guy get out of prison by interpreting his dream, and this guy says, oh, I'll help you get out, but then promptly forgets about him. And so Joseph has to spend even more time in prison, and things get worse and worse. Now, when we meet him, that's turned. He's out now. He's risen to a position of influence and power, but still... He's had a very difficult time of it. And for us to say, well, okay, yeah, he forgave, but there's no but in this story. This is a man who suffered, and yet he forgives. But there's one more thing really important to say about Joseph's decision to forgive, and that is that there was a passage of time between the moment of betrayal by his brothers the day he he forgave them. Twenty-plus years went by. Twenty-plus years. 
And I think there's little doubt that if Joseph had been rescued from slavery after two or three days and brought home, this story would have unfolded very differently than it does. I think it would have been extraordinarily difficult and maybe impossible, at least in human terms, for Joseph to forgive his brothers in those circumstances. The story might have turned very, very, very ugly. But in 20 years, Joseph gains wisdom. Joseph gains maturity. Joseph gains perspective. And I think we do people an enormous disservice when we say to them, well, you're a Christian, you should just forgive. Well, yes, we should forgive. I mean, that is right. Jesus does not give us a lot of wiggle room. But sometimes the pain is so deep and the wounds are so great that it's not just a matter of saying, hey, I I forgive you. It may take time. It may take days, weeks, months, years. It took Joseph. He had 20 years to work through this issue. 20 years. And so again, we just, when we say, hey, just let it go, that's easier said than done. I think what God, is, God wants us to do instead is to say, well, yes, he does want us to, go, to let it go, but I think he recognizes sometimes forgiveness is a process, not an event. It's not a one-time decision. It's a one-time decision that we make to forgive, but it may unfold over a long period of time. And we see that pattern earlier in the book of Genesis. Genesis 27, 41, we see this in the story of Jacob and Esau. Jacob steals Esau's birthright. Esau is furious, and this is what he says. Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near, then I will kill my brother Jacob. I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill him. But Jacob runs away, and he's gone for years, years. And then he comes home at last, and he's terrified, thinking that Esau will kill him. And as Tom explained earlier, he goes through all kinds of maneuvers to try to placate Esau. But when he finally sees him, here's what happens. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. There's forgiveness. There's reconciliation. But it took time. It took time. Sometimes the wounds take a long time. Forgiveness is an absolute. It is. But the words of Matthew 18 and 21 and 22 are instructive, I think. Here's, Here's the encounter between Peter and Jesus. This is what unfolds. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times. Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Now, when we look at that verse, what it says, and what it says immediately to us is that if I commit an offense against you, then you should forgive me. If I do it again, you should forgive me again. If I do it again, you should forgive me again. And the number 77 times is basically Jesus saying as long as it takes. Just keep forgiving. Just keep forgiving. We should be people with a heart of forgiveness. But I think there's another angle to this that we need to look at too, and that's this. I think Jesus is saying that that Peter, it may, you may have to bring this back to me again and again and again and again and again and again and again before that bitterness and that grief and that anger dissipates. And be prepared to do that. It may take a while. We can hold on to grudges, and we do hold on to grudges, and Jesus is saying, no, you can't do that, but you may have to keep bringing it back. Forgiveness is a process. It can be a process. I talked to Craig Walseth about this. Craig is one of the counselors here at Green Tree, and he deals with people who carry enormous hurts, people who have really been badly treated. And I said, what do you say to people about the issue of forgiveness? This is what he said. He said, I tell them that it is a process, but what's important is that you begin, we begin the journey. We begin that, that, let that process, letting that process unfold, that we, that, we, that we make a decision. Lord, I'm angry, and Lord, I'm deeply hurt. But I know that's not where I want to be, and I know that's not good for me, and it's not good for my relationship with that person or people. 
And I want to begin to go down that road, and I pray you'll help me to get there. So I covenant today with you, Lord, that I, will, that I, want, to, I want you to do what, what needs to be done and get me there. But it may take a while before that anger and bitterness and resentment fades. He said it's kind of like, he used this analogy, he said it's like a football player, a really good high school football player, who decides, or, or who is so good, that Division I schools start looking at him. Let's say he makes a decision in the middle of his junior year that uh, he wants to go play football for, for Mizzou. Gary Pinkle says, we want you at Mizzou. We're going to give you a scholarship. And the young man says, great, I'll do it. He makes a verbal commitment to Mizzou. But you can't sign a formal letter of intent with the NCAA until February of your senior year. And you can't enroll to actually play football at Mizzou until you have to graduate. So the, so the point of decision, I'm going to go to Mizzou, occurs during your junior year, but it's not until a year and a half later that you get there. And as Craig said, that's kind of the way forgiveness sometimes can work. We say, Lord, this is where I want to be, but, and I need your help. I can't get there on my own. Please help me to get there. Let's begin to walk down that road together. What's important is that we make that decision, that we say, Lord, I need you. This is a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit so far beyond my abilities. Can you get me there? James Montgomery Boyce was a pastor for many years at Fourth Pres in Philadelphia, and he said it this way. He said, we overestimate what God can do in one year and underestimate what he can do in 20. There may be people in this room who have been caught in such terrible situations that you carry this terrible ache and this anger in your heart, and you say, there's no way I can let that go. But as Boyce suggests, we need to keep bringing that back to God as long as it takes again and again and again and again because the power of the Holy Spirit works and is a process that can give us freedom from that anger. It's hard, it's arduous, it's difficult, and sometimes we don't want to do it. We want to say, no, I'm keeping this one. But I don't think any of us any of us want to be an angry, bitter person. I don't think any of us want to be that person who, when we come to the end of our lives and they write that obituary about us, it says, he was an angry man who could never let go of past hurts. Or she was a bitter, angry woman who couldn't let go of those grievances that had offended her. I don't, think that's the, I don't think that's where we want to be. Life lived in bitterness and anger is not a pretty picture. Joseph had a decision to make. Joseph could forgive. Joseph could hold on to that anger. He made a decision to forgive, and in doing so, wrote a sentence that totally changed his life story and the life story of his family and the life story of the nation of Israel and, by extension, the life story of the church today. If Joseph doesn't forgive his brothers, what would he be known for? He'd be known for a really nice coat that his dad gave him, and that's not much of a legacy. Or maybe he'd be known as a great manager of the Pharaoh's grains. Okay, that's great, but really, so what? Instead, he made a choice to forgive. He said, I'm going to let this go. I'm going to rewrite the sentence of my, my story. I'm going to write the, rewrite the sentence of my life. I'm going to live a life of grace and forgiveness and compassion. Because in 20 years, to think about this, he'd seen the enormity of God's love for him, that God had carried him through all these times and that what he thought was happening in his slavery was being written by God in a very different way. God was writing a story in Joseph's life. He didn't anticipate that it was being written. And only when his brothers came and he was able to forgive them did he see God's purpose. I think we want to be people of forgiveness. I think we want to be people of compassion. I think we want to write a sentence with our lives that talks about those things. And so we need to forgive. Let's close in prayer.